What a story. You can almost see the movie adaptation, depending on your age, might determine which one you envision when you hear this story, but it's there, right? The Egyptians, the Israelites, the waters in one and then in two. Oh, there's so much here. Friends, let us begin with prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. It's hard to ask for help when we can't do something on our own. We have a lot of toys at home for the, <laughs> our now one-and-a-half-year-old, and so we have all manner of cars and books and puzzles and instruments, and among them, that all-time classic, the shape sorter. If you've had children or been in a nursery at any time in the last decades of your life, then you've likely seen this classic toy. Now, ours is a set of six blocks cut in different shapes. There's a triangle and a star and an oval and so on and so forth. And then there's this box with a different cutout for each of those different shapes. And so the idea is that you take a block, you match it up with the correct outline, you line up the block, and you push it through the hole into the box. It's not the easiest of toys to master, as our little man has figured out. Um, He can get surprisingly invested in playing with what does not seem to me to be a very interesting toy. But he gets very invested and gets, has progressed to the point where he can consistently match up the block to the outline to know where it should go. And on a good day, he can line up, where, uh, line up the block in such a way to push it on through. But an off day, he'll try unsuccessfully to push the block through. And he'll try again and again a good half a dozen ways and different variations, getting more and more frustrated with every foiled attempt before eventually passing the block to me. An exasperation. And so I try to help him, try to get him to hold the block with me, my hand over his, so he can feel the movements I, I do to push the block into the box. But he usually refuses. He can't do it on his own, so he gets given up. Someone needs to put the blocks back into the shape sorter, but he's out now. It's on me. This is all a part of normal child development, I am told, which is good because I think the alternative is that he's taking after his father in not exactly an admirable way. See, I'm the sort of person who doesn't write first drafts. I should, and I know I should, but I don't. Anne Lamott once famously said that you should write really, really terrible first drafts as an antidote to the idea that any mortal human being could sit down and craft some perfect composition on the first attempt. But still, I try in writing and everything I do to get it all just right on the first attempt. Because what good is it if you can't get it right the first time? And so I let myself get taunted by the blinking cursor on the blank page, feel the overwhelming distance between the masterpiece I'd like to create and the rudimentary sketch I have the skills to manage. I start to wonder if I'm doing the right thing, and if it's too late to change career paths. Maybe I could go back to my engineering roots, despite the fact that I've never worked as an engineer a day in my life. But still, it can't be too late to just give up. If I can't do it myself, by myself, what other options really are there? Anne Lamott might say the alternative is to write a really, really terrible first draft. And God might well agree. When we're faced with the necessary impossible, 
asked to do something or be something that is good and right and yet completely out of reach, well, perhaps we should not despair and should not give up, for there may still be a way through. When we meet the Israelites in the scripture today, they're between a rock and a hard place with the Red Sea on one side and all of Pharaoh's armies on the other with nowhere to go and nothing to do except give up and go home to Egypt. Or at least that's what they think. Which is not to say that their home in Egypt is anything they'd like to return to. For 430 years, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. They had been oppressed and exploited by a callous regime. Their lives were made miserable with hard labor, the author of Exodus says in the first chapter of the book, and they were forced to do all kinds of cruel work. But God heard the Israelites cry out in their suffering and so sent Moses to demand their deliverance. And at first, Pharaoh refused. Of course he did. But then God sent plagues, and yet Pharaoh continued refusing after plague after plague overran Egypt until eventually after 10 plagues of increasing intensity and destruction, Pharaoh begrudgingly relents and says, get away from my people and go. And so Moses does. He takes the people and they journey out of Egypt and all seems well for a moment until Pharaoh changes his mind. He's not ready to let his enslaved workforce out of his grasp. And so he wonders out loud, what have we done before marshalling the troops? He takes not just his 600 elite chariots and riders, but he takes every chariot from the entirety of the country of Egypt, and he leads all of his armies, all of the chariots that there were to be found in a chase after the Israelites. And I can imagine that they race across the landscape, and the dust starts to billow up from their wheels into a massive dust cloud that settles on the horizon. And the Israelites, as they come up upon the sea, turn around and look up, and they see that the Egyptian army is armed on chariots and racing toward them. They are terrified, Exodus says, and rightfully so. They're pinned between the forces of violent oppression on one side and the depths of the sea on the other, and there is nowhere to go. And as fear so often becomes anger in moments of tension, the people turn to Moses with indignation and they say, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? What have you done to us? It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses responds to the people, but his words are not exactly comforting or an assurance suitable for this moment. It is, in fact, a rebuke wrapped in the veneer of faith, a platitude that dismisses the people's concerns instead of returning them to any sort of depth of faith. Don't be afraid, Moses says to the Israelites. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. And though he's not wrong, the Lord will fight for them. He's also not right. Moses will go on throughout the book of Exodus to show that he is an irritable leader, quick to criticize instead of empathize. And so when the people come to him with fear and they speak with anger, well, Moses responds from a fear of his own that he refuses to even admit he has. And he says to them, shut up, sit down, and stay put. It is, in the end, just another form of giving up. 
he will not willingly return the people to enslavement in Egypt, but he doesn't see anything that he can do. So he's out. He can't do it himself, so why even bother? And that is when God arrives. Why do you cry out to me? God says to Moses, which is funny. It's funny because Moses never cries out to God. Maybe he should have. Maybe there's nothing wrong with asking for help when we can't do it on our own. And then in complete contradiction to Moses' sit-down-and-stay-put approach, God says to Moses, tell the Israelites to get moving. And as for you, lift your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it in two so that the Israelites can go into the sea on dry ground. There's a story from the Jewish Midrash that's told about this moment. The Midrash is rabbinical literature drawn from a rich study of the Torah, given to fill and embody a scriptural story with detail that encourages deeper insight and application. They are these stories that fit around the biblical text to bring them to life or to prompt good questions. And so in this moment, there is a Midrash that centers around a single puzzling word in the Hebrew text, which says that the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground. And so the rabbis wondered, why wouldn't they write that they went through the sea? And so there is a story about the Israelites going into the sea. And the story goes that the Israelite people, with God's promise to part the waters now well in hand, needed someone to be the first one to go into the water to test God's deliverance. And like all good church people throughout all of history, they did what they knew how to do, and they held a committee meeting. The leaders of all of the tribes of the nation of Israel gathered together at the edge of the water, and they sat down, and they argued about who would be the first to walk into the water. No one wanted to be the first. Pharaoh's chariots continued to get closer and closer Day it turned to night, but still no decision was made, and the arguing continued. And eventually the meeting dragged on so long that there was a man by the name of Nashon, son of Aminadab, who walked to the edge of the water. He felt the waves lapping at his toes in the darkness, and then he walked into the sea. He walked into the water up to his ankles, but the water did not part. He walked into the sea up to his waist, but the waters did not part. He walked up to his shoulders and then to his chin, but the waters, they did not part. Still, he walked on and he walked deeper into the sea until the waters came to the very base of his nose and he took a deep breath and took one more step, the step that would put his nose under water and leave him unable to breathe. What do we imagine God does with the wonders and the frailties of the human will? What difference do our small actions, when we can do so very little, make in God's sight? It's probably impossible to say, except that it must mean something. From the very beginning, it has been clear that the limitless and all-powerful creator God has not done all that God would like to do. For some inexplicable reason, 
God, who must have known that the world would turn out to be so very miserable in so very many ways, yet went about making the whole thing just the same. And God, who could do something to make all things right and as they should be, has not yet. The writer Douglas Adams once quipped in a book that in the beginning the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and was widely regarded as a bad move. Which makes me laugh. And it is this wondering question. If God who can do all things could do something, why has God not? Why would God make a world that it ended up in the way that it has? The best answer that I have ever seen someone come up with at least so far, is that despite every reason we can muster to the contrary, God loves us. God loves us just as deeply and as puzzlingly as anyone could ever be loved. And love is sometimes very difficult to pin down, something that cannot be anticipated or fully understood, not when we love each other and certainly not when God loves us. And so that means that in God's love for us, sometimes that means protecting us from the consequences of our decision-making. And sometimes that means respecting us and respecting our decisions and the terrible impact that they wreak on this good creation. There's a puzzling part to the story of the Israelites escaping from bondage in Egypt, which is that at various points throughout the story, and we heard it once or twice in the scripture today, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's a puzzling thing because who would suggest that God is muddling around in our sense of what is right and what is wrong, and so has caused great consternation to theologians and readers across the years. There is perhaps something of note to know that in the ancient Near East, in the culture, in the time when this was written, the heart did not function as it does today. Not in the way that people wrote and understood it. The heart was the body of thinking for the self. The brain didn't do anything of use. The heart what was what, was dis- what decided what to do or what not to do. And so when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, God is simply allowing Pharaoh to make decisions, and to become stubbornly fixed upon them. And it is clear throughout the text that when this happens, God is not working in any way contrary to what Pharaoh has chosen for himself. At times, there would be a plague, and then Pharaoh would harden his own heart. And then there'd be another plague, and God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Whether or not God was involved doesn't seem to have had much impact on Pharaoh, who was stubborn and insistent on the course of action he had decided to follow. Because it's not as if Pharaoh doesn't have opportunities to change his mind, or better, to change his heart, to repent of his ways. It could be that the entire point of the story is that Pharaoh has an opportunity to repent and find a better way. But Pharaoh is stubborn, stupid, and cruel which is a terrible combination for any leader 
let alone one in charge of an entire nation. And so God brings plague after plague, and while we could read them as saying, look at how great God is, and perhaps they say exactly that, they also, every one of them, speak about the terrible things that the Egyptians under Pharaoh's rule have done to the Israelites. The story of Moses opens in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh's father, who was then Pharaoh, worried about how many Israelites there were. He looked out at this great nation of enslaved people and said, if we let them get too big and too strong, then they can turn on us and they can oppress us instead. And so Pharaoh said that this should not be and made a decision then to kill all of the baby boys born to the Israelites, which was at once both cruel and stupid. Because if you kill all of the boys, who exactly is going to work for you? And if you're looking to limit the population, boys may not be the way to do that. But Pharaoh is dumb and Pharaoh is cruel. And so Pharaoh instructs all of the boys to be killed. But the midwives won't do it. And so Pharaoh instructs the babies to be thrown into the river. Is it any wonder that when Moses returns, the first plague is to make the rivers run with blood? Every plague brought to the Egyptians is a reminder of the cruelty that has been wreaked upon the Israelites, an opportunity to see what had been done, and perhaps to repent. Every plague all the way through to the last one, when the firstborn of every Egyptian was killed. There was, Exodus says, a terrible cry of agony that rose from the Egyptian people. It perhaps sounded like the terrible cry of agony God told Moses about, speaking from a burning bush, as God came to Moses and said, I have heard the painful cries of my people in Israel, or my people, the Israelites, in Egypt. But even then, ten plagues in, face to face with all of what had been done to the Israelites now returning to the Egyptians who wrought it in the first place, even then, Pharaoh does not repent. Pharaoh simply sends the Israelites away. And I wonder if there is not something to be mourned in Pharaoh's tragic loss, in his inability to allow himself to repent, his inability to feel pain for anyone but himself and people like him his inability to feel the pain of the immigrants oppressed in his land by his hand. We might wonder, what had God done? And yet we might also wonder, what did Pharaoh not do? In the beginning of stories, as we write them, the beginning of Scripture and the beginning of each of our own stories of faith, We begin with grace. And the Methodist way of beginning with grace is to talk about provenient grace, which is to say that before we need God, God shows up for us. 
God is working in us before we are even aware of it, making us aware of our need for God, beckoning us toward salvation. God makes massive movements in our lives, and ours are small but still important as provenient grace works in us to invite us to do something, to make some small contribution to our own salvation, to walk into the water. He left Nashim in the water, up to his nose and then stepping deeper in. And when Nashim took that one last step, the waters parted, as the story goes. The great wind came, a wind perhaps not unlike that which whooshed over the water in the story of creation. The wind came and separated the waters and lifted the dry land out of the sea, not unlike that moment when God lifted the dry land out of the sea in the work of creation. And so it was that the people were saved through the water in what felt like a creation all over again. Because perhaps to be saved is to be created. Perhaps every salvation is a recreation. When the Israelites go through the waters, they come out as a new people, into a new story, ready to respond to God's provenient grace, as we shall see. And it will take some time, but doesn't it always take some time? This is the start of their covenant relationship with God, God who has been reaching out to them and every story we have read so far is about to invite them to reach back and to be transformed, to be changed into a new creation. We have heard the stories that God will not give up on us, that God is always with us, even in the worst places, and that God who walks with us at all times invites perhaps a single step into the water perhaps encourages us to find that small bit of faith to get our feet wet. To know that whatever hounds us in the night, God is ready to rescue us through the waters. That we do not have to do it all for ourselves, and in fact we cannot, but it's okay to ask for help. For God is there and ready. We don't have to do it. On our own. Perhaps we need just a single step into the waters. Perhaps we need only to put our hand into God's hand and see where the dry land might lead. Friends, may it be so. Amen. I invite us to continue in worship. I invite you to stand as you are able to sing together. He leadeth me, O blessed thought. Number 128 in the hymnal.